The Great Courses Plus is something I've been talking about a lot on this podcast for a while now. Many of you have already signed up, getting unlimited access to watch over 7,000 fascinating lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, I want you to do it now with a new offer for our podcast listeners. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. One course I recommend is Analysis and Critique, How to Engage and Write About Anything. Presented by Professor Armstrong, the lectures in this course guide you through the essential skills to become a better writer, showcasing tools to organize your thoughts, make a persuasive argument, and create a distinctive voice. I love The Great Courses Plus and want you to try it too. As one of my podcast listeners, when you sign up, you'll immediately get one month free of unlimited access to all of their lectures. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. The following program is a podcast1.com production. You're the top. You're the Coliseum. You're the top mm, You're the Louvre Museum You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss You're a band of bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet You're Mickey Mouse You're the Nile You're the Tower of You're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck of love. Honey, baby, I'm the bottom. You're the top. I'm Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis Podcast. And I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with the filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich. My father grew up in the 1950s in a small town in northeastern Nevada called Elko, which now can safely be called a quasi-city with a population of about 20,000. But when I was a kid visiting my grandparents there in the early to mid-1970s, the population was probably under 10,000. Elko was tiny, with one main street, one movie theater, a drive-in on the outskirts of town, a couple of hotels and casinos, a bowling alley, and it exists on Route 80, somewhere between Reno and Salt Lake City, and is host to both the National Basque Festival and the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. My father, born and raised in Elko before moving to Los Angeles for college, had just turned 30 when Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show was released in the fall of 1971, and it impacted him as well as my aunt, his sister, who were both hip enough to look at their own small town caustically and yet still identify and be affected and moved by the Bogdanovich movie. My parents were part of the boomer generation who had adapted to the shift in what movies were now offering. As kids in the 1950s and into the 60s, they were perfectly primed to embrace and become radicalized by the new Hollywood that began with Easy Rider in 1969, though perhaps Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate paved the way in 1967. And the movies had not only become more sexualized and violent, many of the big studio films were also considered artistic achievements. A self-conscious flowering of movie art was happening, where young auteurs influenced by the European New Wave were now making studio films. And this created a moment when the American intelligence 
intelligentsia had become movie freaks, part of the national conversation. And it felt like a different kind of movie art was being made compared to the great films that came out of the Hollywood studio system of the 1930s and 40s and 50s. Elko was probably closer to the Modesto of George Lucas's American Graffiti than it was to the Anarine of The Last Picture Show. And the George Lucas movie figured heavily in our household with a soundtrack playing in the car during 1973 and 1974. But The Last Picture Show caught the mood, the loneliness and despair of small-town American life, I would argue, better than any American picture ever. And every time I visit Elko or any of the other tiny towns dotted against Route 80, I can't help fusing the movie and this town in my mind. And I'm always reminded of my father's problematic adolescence and the rueful, terrible jokes he would crack about Elko and growing up in that small town in the 1950s. The last picture show might have taken place in the early 1950s, but it was most definitely a movie from 1971, an R-rated, sexually frank drama shot in luminous black and white, but made with the old-school precision of a classicist. I knew what The Last Picture Show was as a kid, even though I was only seven when it was released, and I finally caught it at a revival theater in L.A. when I was old enough, and I think it's one of the great movies of that era, probably just behind the Godfather pictures. It is also a movie that has improved with time, and the power it has on people spans generations. I showed it to my millennial boyfriend a couple of years ago, and it became his favorite movie. For those of you listening who might not be familiar with the legendary Peter Bogdanovich, and yes, little snowflakes, I might just be talking about you, though if you are a young millennial cinephile, you should be aware of his work and career, but you never know. So I'm going to quickly recount it here as briefly as possible so everyone can familiarize themselves before we begin talking. Peter Bogdanovich was a young actor and a theater director and a film writer, not critic exactly, in his 20s in New York in the 1960s. When he moved out to California with his wife, Polly Platt, he found himself hired by Roger Corman to help with a couple of exploitation picks before Corman gave him the money to make his official debut, Targets, a low-budget horror movie set in Los Angeles about an all-American boy sniper whose grisly day-long shooting spree ends at a drive-in that night. It's a scary and amazingly assured debut, and this led to, and only being 30, Bogdanovich making the new Hollywood masterpiece, The Last Picture Show, based on the Larry McMurtry novel, about a year in the life of a small Texas town in the early 1950s, centered around the coming of age of two high school seniors, played by Timothy Bottoms and Jeff Bridges, and the girl they both become involved with, played by Sybil Shepard. It was a critical and commercial hit, nominated for eight Oscars, including two for Bogdanovich for Best Director and Best Screenplay, which he wrote along with McMurtry. The movie arrived in American theaters in the fall of 1971, and Bogdanovich at this point was already in the midst of directing his follow-up, the screwball comedy What's Up Doc, starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. And after it opened in the spring of 1972, um, this was the same spring that the last picture show won supporting acting Oscars for both Cloris Leachman and Ben Johnson, What's Up Doc became a blockbuster and was the third highest grossing movie that year, only behind The Godfather and The Poseidon Adventure. It was that huge. Next, he made the much-beloved, though not necessarily by all critics in that moment, and very popular Paper Moon, starring Ryan and Tatum O'Neill. She won the Best Supporting Actress Oscar. And this flush of massive success due to these three movies all took place within a two-year period for Bogdanovich, roughly the autumn of 1971, throughout the autumn of 1973, and then came, well, whatever happened next. Three pictures in a row that famously flopped. 
the adaptation of Daisy Miller by Henry James, the all-star Cole Porter musical at Long Last Love, and the period comedy Nickelodeon. Though in retrospect, Daisy Miller looks better than ever now, and if you happen to catch the heavily compromised Nickelodeon in its restored 2009 DVD release in black and white, as it was originally intended instead of the color the studio insisted upon, something magical happens. A strange, distracting, and dissonant movie about the early days of silent movie making becomes exactly what it should have been, a loving and poignant homage to the movie industry in 1914 before it was about to be rocked by the seismic shifts caused by the release of D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. It was here that Bogdanovich took a break and traveled around the world with his girlfriend, Sybil Shepard, who he had begun an affair with during the making of The Last Picture Show, leaving his wife and two small children at the time. Peter and Sybil broke up while Bogdanovich was in Singapore, shooting St. Jack in 1978. And then, with his new girlfriend, the young Playboy model, Dorothy Stratton, he made what, for some cinephiles, is their favorite Bogdanovich film, the Manhattan-based comedy drama They All Laughed, a Valentine to New York, to Howard Hawks, to Audrey Hepburn, and especially to his new beloved, Dorothy Stratton. Bogdanovich has often called this period the happiest of his life, but two weeks after rapping They All Laughed, Stratton was murdered by her estranged husband manager, who then committed suicide. This is recounted in Bob Fosse's 1983 movie, Star 80. Bogdanovich, grief-stricken, finished the picture and spent his own money releasing it, and then went bankrupt. He came back a few years later with a studio picture, Mask, starring Cher and Eric Stoltz as the doomed, deformed Rocky Dennis, and which was a sizable hit, but dealing with the machinations of the studio system... Oh, this narrative again, left him unmoored, and he spent the rest of his career working on a series of movies that no one really saw, including River Phoenix's last movie, The Thing Called Love, and in 2007, an amazing four-hour Tom Petty documentary called Running Down a Dream, as well as a number of television films, and he had a reoccurring role in The Sopranos as Lorraine Bracco's psychiatrist. Now, this is a bare-bones outline of an incredibly complicated career and long life, no other American director has had such a dramatic arc, has experienced such intense highs, or suffered such immense lows. In the last decade, a new generation of filmmakers have rediscovered Bogdanovich with everyone from Quentin Tarantino to Wes Anderson to Noah Baumbach to even younger filmmakers like Alex Ross Perry singing his praises and citing him as an influence. He seems to be everywhere now at 76, and movies of his that weren't really given a chance upon their release are being watched and admired and being financed and produced by a new generation of filmmakers. Is it a happy ending? I don't know. As Orson Welles once said, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. So, Peter, I have been thinking a lot about The Last Picture Show, as I do on a daily basis, and I know it is the movie you are asked most about and will probably be the first line in your obituary or on your gravestone. And I want to read something that Pauline Kael wrote in 1973. She says... Quote, the Watergate hearings have overshadowed the movies in the summer of 1973, yet the corruption that Watergate has come to stand for can be seen as the culmination of what American movies have been saying now for almost a decade. The movies of the 30s said that things would get better. The post-Second World War movies said that villainy would be punished and goodness would triumph. The decencies would be respected. But movies in 1973 don't say that anymore. The Vietnamization of American movies is nearly complete. Today, movies say that the system is corrupt, that the whole thing stinks, and they've been saying this steadily since the mid-60s. The Vietnam War had barely been mentioned on the screen, 
But you could feel it in Bonnie and Clyde and Bullet and Joe and Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy and The Last Picture Show and They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And The Candidate and Carnal Knowledge and The French Connection and The Godfather, as well as Little Big Man and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid and The Wild Bunch. It was in good movies and bad, flops and hits, especially hits in the convictionless atmosphere, the absence of shared values, the brutalities taken for granted, the glorification of loser heroes. It was in the harshness of the attitudes, the abrasiveness that made you wince until after years of it, maybe you stopped wincing. It had become normal, unquote. She also writes... If Paper Moon had been made in an earlier decade, the con man, Ryan O'Neill, would have embraced the child, Tatum O'Neill, at the end, and maybe he'd have told her he was her father, whether he was or not, and the audience would have had some emotional release. But if the story had been carried to the classic tearful father-daughter embrace, mightn't the audience, or at least part of it, have been turned off by the unabashed sweetness, by the hope for a better future? Possibly the very flatness makes it easier for audiences to accept the movie now. Unquote. So what I'm thinking about, Peter, is did you think that the last picture show would end up being a reflection of the national mood, that it was in fact a movie about where the country was in 1971, even though it took place in Texas in 1952, just as period films like The Godfather Pictures and American Graffiti and MASH and um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Cabaret, The Wild Bunch, Chinatown, even Shampoo or any other number of pictures made during that period. And it's true. You can feel Vietnam. You can feel Watergate. And you can feel the national despair in most, if not all, of the great movies of that time. I mean, you're adapting a novel that was written in 1966. And by the time you're making it in 1970, and by the time it's released in 1971, a lot has changed. And I was wondering, were you aware of this? And were you trying to capture that national mood in terms of tone and sensibility, as well as being faithful to the novel, of course? Or is this just all too trendy for you? Are you just a simple classicist and you were doing your job? I think the latter. Yes, I would, I would think so, too. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think it was Robert Graves who said, it is impossible not to be a part of your time, even if you are against it. Yes. And um, definitely I was aware of, I mean, the mood of the country was dark. And it was darkening from the 60s on. And um, I think that uh, the ending of The Last Picture Show is, is, is sad, but hopeful in some strange way because she does reach out to him. He reaches out to her at the end. I guess it was reflective of the time. I'm sure Larry McMurtry, who wrote the novel, uh, felt that it was reflective of the time, even though it was set in the early in in the early fifties. The book actually wasn't set in the early fifties. The book is sort of very general as to to be what the, generally fifties. I had I decided if you're making the picture, we have to decide exactly when it is, because I wanted to use songs and and uh, TV shows and so on of that period. So I wanted to be precise. So I picked end of fifty from. November 51 to November 52 and um, we were pretty which was an awkward period also that period um, not Vietnam Korea right and Korea was not a popular war 
But there was also something about the frankness and the permissiveness of that movie era that allowed you to go places in picture show that you couldn't probably have gone three years earlier or four years earlier. No, some people said it was a, it was uh, it, it seemed like it was a picture made in the fifties, which I didn't agree with because you couldn't possibly do that movie in the fifties. Right. I mean, the sex alone would have been cut out. You've probably been asked about The Last Picture Show more than any other movie you've made, and I am not going to belabor you with questions about what has become a kind of very famous shoot of that movie, but I am haunted by the movie. And as I said in my Criterion Top Ten choices from earlier this year, I do place it near the top of the list of movies from that golden age of the new Hollywood from that brief time. I think I'm placing it just behind the Godfather pictures. And, you know, the only question that I've had for a long time that pertains directly to the last picture show is about the character Sonny and casting Timothy Bottoms. And what I think, and I wrote in my Criterion Collection Top 10, is maybe the most wrenching and real portrayal of male adolescence in an American movie. And when I was just typing out my Criterion Collection thoughts in a hotel room in Miami, I noticed that out of everything, I just had to mention Timothy Bottoms. I had to single him out. And I have used Timothy Bottoms as Sonny as an avatar in my social media landscape. But in some of your interviews, if reading between the lines, there seems to be that there was a bit of conflict about working with Timothy Bottoms, who is undeniably, I think, the anchor of that movie in so many ways. But was this true? And were there obstacles in terms of dealing with Timothy Bottoms? Yeah, there were. Timothy um, was not easy to work with. He, um, he he's very good in the picture. I don't. Oh, he's great. I don't deny that, but he wasn't easy to work with. For example, with the scene with Cloris and Sonny when when when, he, when they go to bed together the first time, he just didn't wash up. So he came in and just it was it was not it was like a fun smell, <laughs> and he had to go to bed with her. And I said, Tim, go go wash up. Mm-hmm. You know? That was, you'd think he'd wash up because of what the scene was. But that was, he was just a lot like the character. He was introspective. He, was, he wasn't particularly happy. Um, it, just, it was just difficult, you know, sometimes. I, so I, as a director, I often give the actors an idea of how, I like, how I'd like the line to be said. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lubitsch did it with every single character in the movie. Um, I don't do that, but I have been occasionally giving line readings. Mm-hmm. Tim hated that, so I, when, I, when an actor hates that, I I back away from it and try to do it a different way. Because I always say to the actors, you don't have to do it, don't don't necessarily read it exactly like this, but this is to give you an idea of what, I, what the intention is. Because sometimes the nuance and the way you say the line can convey a lot about what you mean. Of course. As opposed to a long paragraph of trying to explain it. Of course. And there was one moment where we had a, he had a line, a very important line, where he says to, to Jeff Bridges, J.C. told me you couldn't even do it that time in Wichita Falls. And that starts the fight. Yeah. And he said, he, he hit he every word but the right one. J.C. told me you couldn't even do it that time in Wichita Falls. And, so on. and I kept saying, no, 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 no. It's about the, the, the action and so on. And finally, he said, okay, well, how do I say it? And I said, J.C. told me you couldn't even do it that time in Wichita Falls, and that he did. So that is an example of, of you know, working with the guy. But when we had the scene with the um, when Sonny uh, the, bo- the boy gets killed, Billy gets killed, mm-hmm. 
and there's a truck parked next to him, the truck that hit him, and it's full of cows. And I and I said, "You're looking down, and then look over at the at the truck." He said, "Why would I look at the truck?" I said, "Well, just to see what hit him." He said, "I don't know if I would look at the truck." Well, you got to look at the truck because I got to cut to the goddamn <laughs> truck. It reminded me of. Uh, Hitchcock telling me about Monty Clifton, I confess, coming out of the court uh, out of the courtroom, and Hitch said, "Look up." And Monty said, "I don't know if I would look up." He says, "You got to look up because I got to cut to the windows up there." You know? <laughs> but there is something, you know, about it. He is perfectly cast in a way that so is you know uh, Jeff Bridges and and Sybil, who was also not an actress necessarily at that time. And there's a th- there can be an authenticity to casting someone who has not acted a lot. And I'm noticing it now. I'm directing a web series, and I notice that there is some. I am looking for something in the auditions that seems authentic, and a lot of actors, very good actors, kind of um, bring too much of their game to it, and it's very hard to get them to kind of rein in and pull back. And I also think that there's part of something that you must have uh, you wanted to cast Timothy Bottoms in is because of the face. You, there's something about the face. There's something about the eyes. Well, he has sad eyes. Yeah. That's intrinsic, and that's sort of there. You don't have to do anything with it. It's just he has sad eyes. And that's probably why I cast him. You know, the new wave of Hollywood directors that you were prominent part of included, you know, William Friedkin and Steven Spielberg and Coppola and George Lucas and on and on, Martin Scorsese. And and I keep wondering when I think about you and when when I read books about this group and I see all the movies that you've done, I often wonder how connected... Were you to any of these filmmakers aesthetically? I mean, seeing you and Brian De Palma on the same list seems rather striking to me, to say the least. But though I guess, I guess in a way, you were both heavily influenced by major auteurs, you know, in the studio system. But did you feel as if you were a part of a group of like-minded directors? And if and if your aesthetic viewpoint was different from theirs, then what was the unifying force that brought you all kind of together in this moment? commerce, I understand, but was there anything that you felt aesthetically linked you all together in that moment as filmmakers of roughly the same age, uh, American making movies in that in that time? I must say, I didn't feel particularly close to any of them aesthetically. Um, I think all of us, uh, virtually all of the, those directors you mentioned were pretty film savvy in terms of the past. They had a sense of film culture. You could talk to Marty Scorsese about Jack Ford or or Howard Hawks or you know they they knew who you were talking about and they were uh, depending on who you're talking to they were influenced by directors who had preceded them. Um, so it was a it was a film literate group of people, and I think that's the only thing that tied us all together because everybody was in a different place. Uh, I remember when I was making, when we were making, when we were preparing to make Picture Show, uh, Bert Schneider said, "You know, there's got to be some nudity in this," and um, there was some question as to whether Sybil would do the nudity. And I said, "Well, you know, it doesn't. She doesn't have to. We can shoot around it." He said, "No, no, we got to have some nudity in this." And so, so we did, <laughs> uh, but very short, very small yeah. amount of it. You know? But effective. But effective, yeah. I just wrote in a. I'm working on a book uh, uh, about that period, mm-hmm. about the early, um, about the from about 1965 to 71. That period, and um, I said in the book that, 
when you're in the midst of a big cultural shift or a big historical shift, you're not really aware of it while it's happening, right? right? Because it's, it's so, it happens slowly. So I wasn't aware of the fact that I was really in Hollywood talking to the older director. I was much more interested in talking to John Ford or Howard Hawks or Hitchcock or Orson Welles or just about anybody from that period rather than talking to my contemporaries. I I had very little contact or interest in in them. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe because I didn't like my high school senior class. (laughs) I felt they turned against me, so I held it against all groups of contemporaries from then on. Well, I do want to ask you about a few of those contemporaries later on, but I was also thinking, well, rewatching a lot of your movies, and as I said in the intro, I mean, amazing what the black and white version of Nickelodeon is like compared to the version I actually saw at the La Riena Theater in Sherman Oaks, I think in January of 1977, on a double bill with The Last Tycoon, the Ilya Kazan movie. My mom took me to it. But during the madness of your popularity, I mean, you were offered some huge movies to direct, including The Godfather and The Exorcist. And I have to say, in terms of material and your temperament, I I don't know if I see the fit exactly. I mean, those movies are to a degree both about evil and as about as horrific as movies got in the early 70s. I mean, could you have gone all the way with the violence of those films? And is that one of the reasons why you simply weren't interested? I mean, I can't imagine you being committed to The Exorcist. Or am I wrong? Um, Bill Blatty, who wrote that? Uh, William Peter Blatty, Bill yeah, Blatty. Yeah. B- Bill stopped me on the way into a screening and said, he gave me the book and said, you've got to direct this. I will not make the movie unless you direct it. <laughs> so I I looked at the I re- didn't read the whole book I just saw what it was about and I just had absolutely no interest in that mm-hmm. none and then I was sort of dismayed that he actually made the film since he said he wouldn't right with Willie with right. Billy yeah. yeah and the Godfather was a funny conversation because they call, called me up Paramount called me up and said we have a new book by Mario Puzo uh, he didn't say the name of the book. And he said, we, we, we'd like you to consider directing. I said, what's it about? And he said, the mafia. And I said, I don't have any interest in the mafia. And that was the end of it. I don't. I didn't. Yeah. No, I believe you. I might have done it uh, in a different time in my life. You know, I, there was a, this was after picture show. And after picture show, I, I just didn't want to go back and do a, a action gangster kind of picture. Right. I think Francis did a hell of a job. I think the first one is particularly good. And um, and casting Marlon was very, very smart. Very smart casting. I wouldn't have done that. I remember talking to Marlene Dietrich, and she said, Why did they use Brando? He's too slow. They should have used Eddie Robinson. <laughs> Um, well, was there anything that we might be surprised that you did turn down uh, during that period? I mean, those are surprising. Uh, you, uh, Chinatown, I heard that you were uh, offered. Yeah, uh, Jack offered me that, and I, I read it. I thought it was a pretty good script, but I, I didn't think it was great. Mm-hmm. And I had a very smart-alecky response. I said, well, if we're going to do Raymond Chandler, let's do Raymond Chandler. Right. And that was my attitude. Bob Evans later told me that Chinatown, despite its reputation, was not a box office hit. Yes, that is often what you hear, that it was was more uh, admired. It was admired, yeah. I didn't like the fact that Roman had Jack with a 
bandage on his nose for most of the picture. It's perverse. Another well, Polanski perverse time. Well, because well, Roman preferred to play the part himself, you know? Right, right, so right. So he can't play the part, he's going to make Jack look ridiculous. Yeah. I think you were making the movies you more or less wanted to make between 71 and 76. I mean, you did make the two movies with Sybil. I mean, well, um, you know, Long Last Love and Daisy Miller, which, as I said in the opening, Daisy Miller looks better than ever now. I mean, it really does seem like... Uh, you know the rhythms of it. I just rewatched it recently. Um, it just seems very modern. It seems to capture Henry James in a way that some really slowpoke adaptations just did not. And, and it was a nif- different kind of James than, say, you know, Wings of the Dove or something like that. But it was—it's really good, and Sybil's really good in it. And it was kind of unfairly maligned at the time. I mean, I think well, there was a lot of personal stuff going on. Yeah, they were—they were against um, us. You know, we were too happy, we were too successful, all that. Cary Grant called me up in the middle of the 70s, and he said, Peter, will you, for Christ's sake, stop telling people you're happy (laughs) and stop telling them you're in love? And I said, why, Cary? Because they're not happy and they're not in love. I said, well, I thought all the world loves a lover. No, don't you believe it. Let me tell you something, Peter. People do not like beautiful people. (laughs) Which is an amazing statement. Yeah, it is. So I I didn't pay. I I should have listened to him, but I didn't. And we got in a lot of shit. Yeah, you did. I'm glad you liked Daisy Miller. I thought I didn't see anything wrong with it. No. Um, uh, you know, I've I've done director's cuts of a number of my pictures. I did three different director's cuts of the last picture show yes. after it was out. Yeah. Because I kept wanting to get it right. And I didn't think the original release version was quite right. It was too short by a, about six minutes. Yeah. But um, Daisy Miller, I thought, was okay. I, I, didn't see, I didn't see how to do it any better. You often correct people when uh, they say you were a movie critic in the 1960s, when you were just writing about film and you, for Esquire, and um, you, you were a film writer. You, Peter has published about nearly 13 to 14 books about movies, and you do, you do have an encyclopedic knowledge about film, maybe rivaled by Tarantino or Scorsese. And, but people forget that there was a period when film critics did become screenwriters and sometimes directors. I mean, Paul Schrader comes to mind, for instance. He fits that bill. And well, went, the whole French New Wave. The, well, first of all, the entire French New Wave, that's yeah. true. And that didn't really happen here. I mean, there were uh, Jay Cox, Paul Zinnerman, um, uh, Roger Ebert wrote scripts that got made into movies. Uh, even Pauline Kael was wooed by Hollywood and quit her stint at The New Yorker in 1979 to um, oversee a project for Paramount and I think nine months later left in horror and I <laughs> and I guess this is I went back to reviewing for the New Yorker and I guess this is just kind of wallpaper to the question about are there people writing about film now that you like and do you think having that kind of knowledge you did as a filmmaker and I, I think all of you did have about the history of film and about foreign films and the French New Wave does that help you when you're about to make a movie, or does it become a bit of a distraction at the same time? Well, you know, I look at it this way. There's a certain vocabulary and grammar to the making of films, and I was learning about that, and that's why I talked to all those older directors, because I, I was picking up nuts for the winter, you know? Um and not just the older directors, but some of the actors as well. And I learned things that I used. I remember Howard Hawks said to me, always cut on movement, then people won't notice the cut. And I've thought of that every time I make a movie. Now, of course, 
recently or in the last 20 years, people like you to see the cuts. They're showing off. They want you to notice yeah. it. I don't, I've always thought it was better not to notice. Or Jack Ford who said, uh, you know, try to get it on the first take because the actors are fresher on the first take. And um, interesting thing, Fonda, Hank Fonda told me that before they made the scene at the, the, the goodbye scene in The Grapes of Wrath with the mother, mm-hmm. that Ford didn't want to see them rehearse it. He didn't rehearse it with them. He said, you guys can rehearse it. I don't want to see it until we shoot it. And I've done that on a number of emotional scenes because the director is the... I realize why he did that. Because the director is the only audience that the actors have, really. And if they've played it for that audience before the camera turns, they've used up some freshness and some basically important quality that they that they can't recapture because they've already done it. Yeah. So I've I've, I've done that. I've, that's that kind of information is very valuable. Or that Ford said to me one time, "Well, that was just an accident." Most of the good things in pictures happen by accident. Mm. And I had made one film, and I thought, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I went to and Next time I saw Wells, I repeated the Ford's quote. And I said, is, is that true, Orson? Do you agree with that? And he took a long pause and then said, yes. You could even say that a director is a man who presides over accidents. Mm. And I thought, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> So, but I learned what it meant. It basically meant that you have to leave yourself open for the possibility that something might happen that's better than what you thought you wanted to do. Yes. And I have done that. So I was learning about film from talking to these guys. You know, Ford (laughs) Ford said, Jesus Christ, Bogdan, is that all you can do is ask questions? Have you never even heard of the declarative sentence? <laughs> and then he made another remark, which was very funny, when we were, when we were going to do the documentary. Mm-hmm. He said to somebody, I was there, I heard it, it was very funny. He said, oh, Peter, well, he's always over here anyway. I wake up in the middle of the night, he's there asking me a question. I don't know how he gets in here. <laughs> um, Michael Cimino director of The Deer Hunter in Heaven's Gate, died last week, and he became kind of a symbol of the excess of the new Hollywood, making one of its greatest films and then shutting the door with Heaven's Gate, uh, the signifier for the end of an era. And he that kind of led us to the place where agents and lawyers began to call the shots in the 1980s. I watched the remastered Criterion version of Heaven's Gate earlier this year, having only um, seen the studio's mutilated version in 1981. And uh, though visually it's overpowering, and Vilma Zygmunt's photography is extraordinary, it's not a very good movie. And I think very obviously it's not. Uh, It is an attempt at a major work of art. It's obsessive. It is ambitious as all get out. It feels personal. But that doesn't necessarily make a good movie. One of the things that goes out with obsession that that a director loses when he's obsessed is kind of perception of things and the scale of things. And if you reflect back on Cimino, doesn't he seem like that final nail in the coffin that began with the success of Jaws and then on to Star Wars, which I think people forget are both a tourist new Hollywood movies. I mean, Star Wars is a very personal movie for George Lucas, and, and Jaws took this kind of stale B-movie material and turned it into you know an A-list picture. 
Tarantino likes to add in, to make a triumvirate of it, of Rocky also was one of the problems that ended the new Hollywood of the 70s because its optimism was a rebuke to the fashionable pessimism of the 70s. So Heaven's Gate is kind of the whipping boy. The demise of the movie Bratz, I guess, in a way. Would you say it was that, or would you sense it started much earlier than that? Well, what year was Heaven's Gate? Heaven's Gate premiered, and it was supposed to open in November of 1980. The studio pulled it after the disastrous press screenings, and then they recut it. It was four hours long, I think, or something like that, three and a half hours long. And they were cut into about a two-hour and 15-minute picture and put into theaters in April of 81, where it just flopped and made no money at all. But it it seemed to be... So it was after Jaws and after Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Jaws and Star Wars... um they may have been personal to the directors, but they didn't seem to be. Yeah, fair. They, they, fair s- they seem to be commercial pictures, an action uh, kind of adventure, horror movie, Jaws, and the other one was a science fiction picture that we weren't, that had never been done quite on that scale. Scale, right? right. Um, they were both kind of exploitation pictures, done, f- fancied up, and and done rather well. As opposed to, um, they were really were released like exploitation pictures all over the country. In other words, Jaws opened, I think, in three thousand theaters, as opposed to a hundred or, or or ten. You know, picture show opened in one theater in New York, one theater in Chicago, one theater in L.A., and played there for weeks. Yeah. Before we opened up bigger, that was the way it was usually done. Jaws came out and opened in many, many theaters. I think at the time it was something like 500 or 400. It was a lot. Which was the biggest wide open, I think, that had ever happened in yeah. American films. Yeah, yeah. But for, for an A picture. Yeah, for an A picture, right. And that changed things. That changed things very drastically, actually, because the whole idea of the top ten grocers and all that, that started around then. Yeah. That yeah. was the kind of stuff that was only in variety. It wasn't, it wasn't talked about on the news. Right. Uh, and I don't think that helped pictures either. No, what won the weekend. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that just made you have to get a great weekend to open, and that wasn't the kind of pictures I was making. During that period of Heaven's Gate, there were some pictures that were very auteurs that did not find their audiences. I mean, you could look at Coppola's One from the Heart was the end of that period. I think Billy Freakin made Cruising in that period, and that was kind of, he veered off, and you know, you had made They All Laughed at that period as well. I mean, it was it was an interesting moment where it seems that the doors were closing on that. And then we did get into the agents kind of taking over and the lawyers kind of taking over and making the kind of calls that whatever, John Calley or whoever, what kind of creative studio, creative studio guy would let people make, you know, filmmakers make the kind of movies that they wanted to make for a while, mm-hmm. for a while, not for a long time. There's something different about you, something that separates you from the new Hollywood pack, is that you seem to really like, and I've noticed this again watching your movies the last month or so we watched them, is that you really like women in what seems like a genuine and uncomplicated way, which is kind of rare in the movies from your peers. I mean, I think Paul Mazursky is probably the only other one that really kind of embraced women. And you seem to be, you know, the key one of the key members of the new Hollywood who who liked and embraced women at the time. I think, you know, yes, Scorsese made Alice doesn't live here anymore, but he's really known, you know, for Taxi Drive and Raging Bull from that period. And I think uh, Spielberg made uh, the Sugar Sugarland Express, but Jaws and Close Encounters were, you know, the movies that defined him. 
And yet when you look back at the key movies of that era, whether it's Easy Rider or Midnight Cowboy or The Wild Bunch, The Godfather Pictures or The French Connection or Deliverance or The Sting or Butch Cassidy and the list goes on and on, your films comparatively seem to need women more than other filmmakers of that period. Um, there is kind of a feminine nature at work. Where does this come from? And if so, why? And is this true even? Am I, am, I, am I making up some kind of crazy theory or do you feel that this was a major component? Oh, yeah, I think so. Very much so. I wasn't quite as aware of it as I became later. Mm-hmm. When it was happening, I wasn't quite as aware of it. I remember Ms. Magazine wrote a review of Paper Moon in which they said there is one great woman's role in all the movies this year, and it's played the nine-year-old Tatum O'Neill in Paper Moon is like the best female part. Yeah. Um, but there are two other terrific female parts in that movie as well. Oh, yeah, Madeline. Yeah. And um, her helper. P.J. Johnson. Yeah. Who got the part. I'll tell you how she got the part. Yeah. She had never acted before. Mm-hmm. I went to Houston to do some casting because I, I, I wanted to... Texas has very good non-actors and some good actors as well. And we cast picture show there. So I went down to Houston to see some girls and Gary Chasen was my casting guy I said bring me you know five or six black girls let me see and we were in this it's Houston so there's a gigantic suite from the front door of the suite to where I was sitting on the couch was like you know several yards many yards so PJ comes into <laughs> comes into the room, and as she's crossing, she's looking at me and she says, "Woo wee, you good looking." <laughs> I said, "You got the part." <laughs> um, but where where do you think this comes from? This uh, this embracing of women in your movies and this kind of very casual, unconscious way of using femininity and using actresses it really is and again I, I noticed this while going through a lot of the new Hollywood movies from the 70s that this seemed to be you know first and one of the one of the things that makes you such an interesting director um, I don't know I, I can't quite say where that comes from except that I remember being offered Dog Day Afternoon and I said but there's no women in it and the last detail I was offered to, and I said, there's no women in it, and I just wasn't interested. I just think women, uh, uh, movies with women and men are just more interesting than movies with men and no women. Um, there's no there's no friction between just men. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't interest me. I, I don't know where that comes from, frankly. I don't either know. I mean, even with gay men, there's really no person. You have a bunch of gay men in a room. I'm gay. I mean, we, there's not that frisson there either. There, there is it, there's just something, Yeah, I know. Somebody said to Bogart after Casablanca, they said, Jesus, you were so romantic in that picture, uh, Bogie. How did that How did that happen? Well, you've never been so romantic before. And Bogart said, if you have somebody like Ingrid Bergman looking at you as though you're adorable, you are. <laughs> That's reflected yeah. glory. Yeah, yeah. But I, I wish I could give you a better answer as to where it comes from. I don't have any idea. I love my mother. I, I, I like women. I, I, I like to talk to women. Uh, I find them more interesting conversationalists generally than men. Women not being given proper credit was one of the things we talked about on a podcast I recently recorded with the actress Ileana Douglas. And she said that she noticed while uh, curating a series on Turner Classic Movies called Trailblazing Women that women participating behind the scenes often contributed a huge amount to the making of movies. 
and were never really given credit that it was and still is to a degree an overwhelmingly patriarchal system. Alma Hitchcock is always mentioned as a kind of victim in this as well. And Polly Platt, your ex-wife, too, is mentioned as we move into a further historical overview of that period of the 70s. But if the director is the auteur of a movie, how real is this complaint in a way? I mean, no matter how collaborative the nature of the art form is, it's still a director's medium. I mean, Alma Hitchcock didn't direct Vertigo or Psycho. I mean, it wasn't a personal expression of her obsessions and her fantasies and her fears. And again, Polly didn't direct The Last Picture Show or Wasp Doc or Paper Moon. But for those of you who don't know, Polly was a production designer on those pictures, as well as A Star is Born in Terms of Endearment. And she wrote the screenplay for Louis Malle's Pretty Baby and helped produce Broadcast News, The War of the Roses, and Wes Anderson's first movie, Bottle Rocket. But she never directed. And where are we in this new narrative in cinema history, a narrative that also skews ideologically against John Ford, racism, or even someone benign as John Hughes, sexist? Were the great filmmakers not properly giving credit to the women behind the scenes? And did Polly ever want to direct uh, she, there was a period where, toward the, um, at some point, that she sort of toyed with the idea of directing one of Larry McMurtry's books. I think it was um, "All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers," but uh, she never, um, she never did do it. Um, I don't know that she was. Um, um, I don't think she was dying to direct. You know, I don't think it was something that she. Re- maybe she was a little bit f- afraid of it too. Well, it wasn't much of an option then. I mean, the only I, Elaine May is the only person I can remember during that period was making up studio pictures. Yeah, she was. But one of the women in the new Hollywood who did wield power was your agent, Sue Mengers, who it was just announced that Morgan Spurlock is going to make a documentary about. And Mengers was famous because she was arguably the first woman in Hollywood behind the scenes who had real power. She had acquired a powerhouse stable of actors and directors, basically running the town, deciding what movies could get made or not. And she had a flamboyant personality that the media loved and loathed at the same time. And she was covered a lot by the press. I mean, I can't imagine any agent now getting a segment on 60 Minutes, as Mengers got in 1973. What was it like dealing with Mengers as an agent? I mean, I got to know her the last uh, 20 years of her life, and I really liked her. But did she know what she was doing? Did she have taste? Was she savvy about material? Um, not exactly. But she had a great. She was a terrific personality. She was fun. Completely. She was fun to be with, and uh, you know, it's what's up, Doc, that really created her her mystique, because that picture she was responsible for getting Ryan and Barbara to do that picture. Yeah, two of her clients. Uh, they they Barbara really was it really was David Bigelman's client, right? But, but, but she became. Uh, Sue's client because of Doc's success, and a, a lot, of, and that picture was credited to Sue as a package, because she had me and I, and then uh, they 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 got Barbara to see the last picture show before it was even finished, and she wanted to work with me. She wanted to do a drama with me, actually, and I said I, I don't want to do a drama. I just did a drama. I want to do a comedy, and then Sue asked me to use Ryan who I didn't even know. I hadn't seen Love Story. I had to go see it, which I didn't want to see. It. 
and uh, uh, she forced me to see it. And I thought, and I met Ryan, and I rather liked him. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I told him we're going to play you completely against Car- against your type. Yeah. And I told him to go talk to Cary Grant. And Car- and I came back from talking to Cary, and I said, "What did Cary tell you about playing comedy?" He said, "He told me to wear silk underpants." <laughs> That was it. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Uh, Sue was was fun. I just, I, I mean, I remember being invited to her dinner uh, at her house for her salons, and I really liked her a lot. I mean, she was really funny, totally unpolitically correct, absolutely right. filthy jokes, always smoking a joint, and you know, the food she served was always terrible. I'm talking about post the parties. I I was too young for that part of her life. But, you know, the food was always inedible. Uh, but it was just, you were, you'd often be sitting with legends, eight of you around her little coffee table in her living room. And as she got older, she was kind of immobile. She would just be in a, on a little divan yeah. uh, sitting there. And I, I got to become friends with her, strangely enough, because her favorite novel of all time was American Psycho. Hmm. Which was, seems so strange to me that that would be Sue's favorite book. But that's how I got to know her. Well, I, I I don't know what it was. Sue came to see me after uh, Targets uh, had come out and gotten some attention, and she uh, actually signed me, so to speak, before Picture Show was even out, well, even fit shot. And I, I just liked her; she was funny and fun to be with, and so on. Uh, I did. I, I I soured on her because she maneuvered me into doing Nickelodeon with uh, some producers who were preparing a picture about the old Hollywood and she knew I was preparing a picture of old Hollywood she said there's not going to be two movies made about old Hollywood so why don't you work with these guys with Charlie and Winkler there was nothing wrong with Charlie and Winkler I liked them but but it wasn't quite my movie right. as much as I wanted it to be uh, although nobody really argued with me about it but it, it wasn't quite what I what I had thought I was going to make. And then the black and white issue was a big problem um, because it's so much better in black and white. So much better, yes. It's a different movie. Completely different. Completely different. It was so surprising to rewatch it in black and white because you really think, well, how different can it really be? Completely. The entire mood of the movie shifts. Yeah. And it becomes much more elegiac. uh, And realistic. Poignant. And realistic, yes. Uh, and it almost seemed, and I don't know if this was true or not, it almost seemed almost lit for it in a way. Because well, you're very perceptive because I'll tell you what happened. When we were told we couldn't do it in black and, in black and white, I was just livid. But we had to make the movie. We just, we were just in no way out of it. So I said to Laszlo Kovacs, mm. let's light it for black and white. Because someday we're going to print this in black right, and white. Right, right. And so Laszlo lit it for black and really? white, uh, so that when we when it was tri- when it was uh, printed in black and white, it looked good. Yeah. Because it was lit for black and white. Yeah. Anticipating that we would one day get my way. Now you explored it, I guess, in Targets to a degree, but the level of violence in the new Hollywood exploded really after Bonnie and Clyde was a big hit. And The Godfather is definitely a high watermark for screen violence culminating in Taxi Driver and the Brian De Palma movies, I suppose. But what is the difference now, I guess, between the movie violence of the 1970s and the violence in big movies now? I mean, you've said it is a big problem in American movies now. And you made these comments uh, after the shooting in Aurora, Colorado, after the Dark Knight Rises screening in 2012 that killed 12 people. 
And that kind of eerily echoed your first film, Targets, which which we talked about. There's something along the lines of how violence in American movies now rarely stings, rarely has a powerful impact, and yet it's everywhere. And it's maybe only there for entertainment, for spectacle. And I don't know, what what is the kind of violence that you are talking about in particular now or in the last 10 or 15 years that just wipes you out and you go, I don't get it? Well, I don't know. I think what happened was I remembered talking about I didn't like that. I didn't like to make that kind of picture. Right. But I was making a Roger Corman production, and it was obviously going to be kind of a horror movie. And it was Boris Karloff and so on and so forth. And um, just before, about two years before we made, a year before we made the picture, um, that guy Charles Whitman had gone to the, climbed up to the tower uh, at the uh, University of Texas in in, in Austin and shot about 30 people. Right. And that's what we based that character on. That was the first mass shooting that I remember. Yeah. I think it was the first yeah. one. And um, it was so shocking at the time that I thought that was modern horror. Yeah. And Boris was representative of Victorian modern horror, which wasn't really scary anymore. But the idea that somebody goes into a theater and shoots a bunch of people, uh, that's, that's horrible. And... As the seventies progressed, I remember Orson said, "We're debasing the audience. We're we're numbing them. We're uh, it's losing the impact because there's too much of it, and so people take it for granted. Now you've got video games that are just everybody getting killed, uh, and and uh, there's a, the body count was objected to by some critics in Targets. They said there's too many people getting killed. Well, we didn't kill half as many people as Charles Whitman did. And now it's just it's people get slaughtered every... Uh, that's sort of what happens. And it also happens in real life. You know, I'm, I'm just so disgusted with this, with the, where we are and with the NRA and, and the, the, the impossibility of the Second Amendment... I mean, I wish people would realize that when that was written in this in the 18th century, they had muskets, yes. which took five minutes to reload. Yeah. They didn't write it thinking that there were going to be machine guns that could kill 20 people in, in 20 seconds. Yes. So the right to bear arms meant muskets. So I think if, they, if we just had muskets, we'd be all right. <laughs> it's awful. You know, it's just, uh, just terrible. And I can hear the NRA lovers <clears throat> turning off this podcast and saying he's the son of a bitch. I don't know how many we have. You're the top. You're Mahatma Gandhi. You're the top. You are Napoleon Brandy. You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain. You're the national Toy balloon 
In this recent Brian De Palma documentary by Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow, De Palma said a director cannot plan their career. That people assume when they look back at a director's oeuvre that he has somehow systematically created a career for himself with a first act, a second act, and a last act. But that movies are made in such a way that you grab what you can when the money is available, when an actor is available, when the studio wants to make the movie. And then you just have to go with the flow in a way, fate and luck and money all inextricably linked and that there were plenty of movies that he never got made because of how the system works. That's just how it is. And that people think filmmakers plan their careers and they don't. But did the system really work that way for you? I mean, didn't you get to kind of make the movies you wanted to make for the most part in the 70s up until they all laughed? I mean, I was thinking of, except for maybe Nickelodeon being the one that was the compromise in a way. Well, at long last, Love was, was not, didn't come out the way I wanted it either. But was it a movie you instigated that you yeah, wanted to make? Okay, yes. all right. Yeah, all of those films were pictures that I wanted to make. But uh, various things happened on *A Long Last Love* and *Nickelodeon*, which made them come out as pictures, not what I wanted to make. Right. That I did eventually get them right. <laughs> yeah. But it was long past their release date. At Long Last Love, I don't know. You know I don't know if you know the story, but it was very compromised in the cutting. And that was just as much my fault as the studios. We we just we were, we were being rushed, and, uh, and it just was not not. We should have previewed it about ten times. You know, when when the, you bring a Broadway show, a musical to New York, you don't open it right. after two performances. Right. And that's what we had: two performances, and then we opened, and it was just a disaster because it wasn't the picture we we should have released. And there was a guy at Fox, head of the editorial department, a guy named James Blakely, who's passed away now, who, unbeknownst to me, was a big Cole Porter fan and also had been, as a young man, uh, performed in some uh, Cole Porter shows. And behind my back, because I had final cut, he cut the picture the way he thought it ought to be cut. (laughs) And I didn't know this. But that version was shown... And people would come up to me and say, why did that picture get panned? We saw it on Showtime. It was quite good. And so on. I said, well, I had done a recut. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were talking about that. Turns out they weren't. They were talking about Jim Blakely's cut, which I didn't know existed until about five years ago. And uh, somebody said to me, at long last love is on Netflix. So I watched it on Netflix. And I said, where this? I cut this scene. But why did I cut it? It's good. Mm-hmm. So Jim Blakely cut that's the amazing. picture, and it did brilliant, did a brilliant job. Amazing. And that's the picture we should have released. And that's the picture that's on DVD now. That is the picture. And is that the picture that I, I could find on Netflix or on uh, on iTunes or wherever it might be available? It's on, it's on DVD. And then I took, after Nickelodeon came out in color and wasn't the picture that I intended, because, you know, most of the things in Nickelodeon, most of the anecdotes, most of the situations were based on things that Alan Dwan, the director, um, when I told Orson that I was interviewing Alan Dwan, he said, Alan Dwan, my God, he started directing around the time of the invention of the electric light, didn't he? He was right. It was by 1910. But I loved Alan. He was a yeah. wonderful man. And Raoul Walsh had told me stories about that period and Alan Dwan and uh, Leo McCary. So all of the anecdotes, all the uh, situations were actually based on re- real things, but in color they seemed phony. Right. They seemed mm-hmm. made up. Yeah. 
and uh, the actors seemed modern, and it had to be in black and white. Anyway, that's, so that picture didn't come out the way I wanted to. And Daisy Miller was exactly the way I wanted to, but it wasn't a hit. Uh, and so I, I decided to take some time off and go back to basics. And I took almost three years off, and then I made St. Jack exactly the way I wanted it. I even went back to Roger Corman and said, because the studio didn't want to make it with Ben Gazzara. Right. Paramount said, we'll make it, but not with Ben Gazzara. We want Paul Newman or somebody like that. I said, no, I want Ben Gazzara, and I'm not going to compromise. So I went to Roger, and I said, will you fund this picture? And he said, yeah. So we made the picture for very low bucks in Singapore with Ben. And the Paramount then saw the picture and almost bought it. And, but they gave Ben, a, they cast Ben in a, a, a picture that they were making at the time with Audrey Hepburn called Bloodline. Bloodline, all right. And that's how Benny got in the picture. And he, got, he went from fifteen grand he got from us to two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand for <laughs> for, for, for Bloodline, Bloodline, and yeah. then the next picture he got five hundred thousand. So, oh. and that's the reason that I cast Audrey and Ben in They yeah, All Laugh because he fell in love with Audrey and she sort of fell in love with him and there was a thing on that on Bloodline and, I, and Ben would come back to me at my house and say oh uh, Audrey my Audrey my Audrey she's a saint she's a saint and I, so I wrote that for her and for him by the time we got to make the picture that, that it was over the relationship was over so it was rather difficult but it worked because Audrey was, was, was uh, extraordinary um, but that was my favorite picture. And um, there's a documentary that was released uh, this year called One Day Since Yesterday, which is on Netflix. And uh, it's about the making of They All Laugh. Really? And uh, it's it's quite a good documentary. It was made by a fellow in Florida. One Day Since Yesterday? Yeah. It's on Netflix. On Netflix? Okay. It, it, it has Quintons in it and, and Noah and mm-hmm. and uh, Wes all talk about the picture. Yeah. And... and um, it's uh, it's both my it's my favorite picture of mine and people ask me why I said because if anybody wanted to know what I'm like that's yeah. that's the best example of what I'm like I guess getting back again I'm referencing Ileana Douglas so much but Ileana Douglas said she would have been so much happier as an actress if she had actually been under contract in the old studio system well that's true and I have been hearing this from a lot of people <laughs> from either writers directors producers to a degree but compared to the idea of what the studio system is now of course anybody would want to be back in those days but what were the pros exactly of the old studio system and what were the cons that left a lot of actors so unsatisfied well, look, um, I think the biggest plus of the studio system was that you had everybody under contract, frankly. Mm-hmm. Because if you're writing Casablanca and you know that Bogart's going to play it, you can write for that. You can write for what he is like. When I made They All Laughed, I knew who was going to play every part. So it was easier to write. I knew it was going to be Audrey, so it was easier to write for Audrey because I knew what she's like. It was easy to write for Ben. It was easy to write for everybody because I knew what they were like. Blaine Novak with the long hair mm-hmm. and the way he, he talks about Pud and, mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, pre-bop and the post-bop. That was mm-hmm. the way Blaine talked. So in the studio system, you had all these extraordinary actors under contract and it was so much easier to write for them and, to, and, and also to make pictures because you didn't have to... Now every picture is start, starting over. Yeah. 
in those days, everybody was under contract, and you had you could do whatever you wanted with those actors. I think actors were maybe some actors were frustrated, but I, I don't I don't think too many. You know, Howard Hawks once said to me, "You know, Peter, in the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, we had more stars than there ever been in the history of the world, and very few of them had much to say about what they were going to be in." Because actors notoriously are not the best judge of what they should be doing. Sometimes they are. Cary Grant was his, his own. He, he, he was not signed to any studio for, for quite a, from about 1937 on, so he pretty much created the trajectory of his career more than anybody else, any other star. But generally, they were under contract. And that was great for the filmmaker. Of course, there were things that weren't great. In the, in, the, in the studio system the, the, the production code was a problem but you know if you were smart you could get around it if you were talented look at what Preston Sturgis did with the miracle of Morgan's Creek in 1944 in the midst of the war he had a story about a girl who gets knocked up by somebody she doesn't even know who mm-hmm. maybe several people and gets pregnant in a small town and has to get somebody to be her husband Eddie Bracken how did he get away with that? <laughs> How did he get away with that picture? Yeah. To this day, I wonder how he did it. But yeah. he did it because he was talented. Yeah. And he used his talent to get around the thing. You know, you, in, you didn't have to see them go to bed to know when they were going to go to bed, you know? Yeah. When I talked to Quentin Tarantino for a piece I did on him for the New York Times last year, I was curious about what he thought of certain filmmakers. And I would ask him a name, and he would give me a thumbnail sketch of what his feelings were about them. And he was very opinionated, and I was surprised by his likes and dislikes. Hitchcock, for example, he was not a fan of. And he actually, I was shocked to learn, actually preferred Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho over the original. And you have to sit with Quentin and let him explain this to you. It still doesn't hold sway at all, but it's still fascinating to see how his mind works about that particular movie. And he had complicated feelings for the works of uh, David Fincher and Wes Anderson and Catherine Bigelow and Judd Apatow and a few others. But I just wanted to drop a few names of a few directors, and I'm curious what your just first impressions are, whatever comes into your head. And I'm curious because you really haven't written that much about the filmmakers of the new Hollywood. Um, So, for example, if I mentioned Robert Altman... What would your response be? Well, we didn't get along personally. Really? Yeah, um, I did him a favor. It's a funny story. Um, I liked MASH, and um, I thought that was very good. And I liked Brewster McCloud. And then I didn't like many of his other films, really. Mm-hmm. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I was offered The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler, and I thought, yes, I'll do this, but I'll only do it if, if, if I can use either Lee Marvin or, 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 or Bob Mitchum to play uh, Philip Marlowe. And they said, well, we've already made a deal with Elliot Gould. I said, I, I love Elliot Gould, but I can't see him as, as Philip Marlowe. So I said, I passed. And Altman had done mash with, with Elliot, and so he had no problem with Elliot as Philip Marlowe, but it isn't really the book. Right, it isn't, no. It's an Altman picture. It is an Altman picture, yes. The picture was panned, had a very, very bad uh, ad campaign, Terrible. and at that time, I had a column in Esquire. So I wrote a piece about The Long Goodbye and said, it isn't really a, a Chandler picture, but it's a good Altman picture. 
and the studio should reissue it and give it a decent campaign, which they did. Mm -hmm. And they used my quotes to help them. From that time forward, Bob Altman never said a nice thing about me. He always said nasty things about me, like he called me a Xerox director. (laughs) And I thought, well, screw you, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I was reminded of a story that I heard when somebody said to William Randolph Hearst, you know, that guy Joe Dokes, he doesn't. He hates your guts, W.R. And he said, that's funny. Her said, that's funny. I never did him a favor. <laughs> um, Billy Freakin. Well, I thought the French connection was well, was well made. Um, again, we didn't get along personally. So that affects my attitude about the... That's not a problem. About the films, you know. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, I'm surprised that... Not surprised, but I'm so, so saddened that Quentin didn't like Hitchcock. Yeah, really, and especially uh, not the 50s movies. He did not like the 1950s movies at all. And he thought, Quentin said that the 1950s in American film were as bad as the 1980s for American film. Those are the two decades that most rankle him in terms of artistic achievement. Well, I think the 50s were damn good. Yeah, I think they were too. It was the last great period. And Hitchcock's films in the 50s were great. And I think into the 60s as well for the first couple or so. And it was interesting because we got into a talk about Vertigo, um, and Tarantino just absolutely does not understand why Vertigo is considered on the sight and sound pole, the greatest movie ever made, displacing um, Citizen uh, Citizen Kane. Kane. But, you know, you do see, if you really do follow the narrative of how certain movies travel through academia into criticism and how Vertigo moves its way through history to the top of that pole, there is a narrative that's followable. It just doesn't happen by accident. You know, it isn't like people just decided to give it to Vertigo one year. And look, I love both those films. Vertigo is a chillier movie to fall in love with compared to Citizen Kane. But I do know that I am ultimately completely overpowered by Vertigo every time I watch it. Well, I like it, but it's not my favorite Hitchcock. I I like the film, but I wouldn't call it the best film ever made. I wouldn't call it Hitchcock's best film. I I prefer Rear Window. Mm -hmm. I prefer North by Northwest. I, I even prefer Strangers on a Train. Do you think Vertigo has moved to the top of the critics' poll because it's a movie about watching movies and it has a kind of meta-ness to it that appeals to critics in the 2000s right now that it steadily made its way up because it seems like a self-reflexive picture in a way? Maybe, maybe. I, I, I was surprised at that. Yeah. The, the, but I've heard other people say they weren't surprised about it, as you're sort of saying that they weren't surprised that Vertigo made it to the top of the list. I, I was surprised because I don't think it's I don't think it's as entertaining as Hitchcock's other film. Right. I like it. I think Jimmy is extraordinary in it. The last scene is heartbreaking, and he's so brilliant in that last scene when he says you shouldn't have been so sentimental. It breaks, your, breaks your heart. Great. He's a great uh, actor, Jimmy, but I didn't love the movie. I thought it was very well made. There's a funny story about that. Uh, which Peggy Robertson, uh, who was Hitch's assistant, told me. They, they, he showed the film to Alma, who hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. And they were riding in the limo after the film, after she'd seen it. And um, she said she raved about the picture. She said, wonderful picture, Hitch, just wonderful. I loved every word. There's one shot, I think, when Kim is crossing the street that she looks a little broad in the beam. I think you could maybe lose that shot. 
and then she had to get out to go shopping and hitch it was quiet and um didn't say anything for a while and then Peggy said isn't it wonderful how Alma loved the picture and he said, said Alma hated the picture <laughs> <laughs> Sam Peckinpah not my cup of tea Stanley Kubrick uh, well I liked early Kubrick Paths of Glory The Killer's Kiss or Killer's not Killer's Kiss what was it? The, 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 kiss, the no? Killing the Killing, yeah, and there was Killers. Yeah, The Killing and Paths of Glory and um, the later Kubrick I'm, I'm not fond of. Hal Ashby, who has become a kind of beloved figure among youngish cinephiles now, uh, his career kind of uh, re-examined. And he certainly was the hero of that Peter Biskin book, uh, you know, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls. Raging Bullshit. Yeah, well, I have a feeling that that was not... This, the Peter Biskin book is a book about uh, kind of an uh, overall history of what we've been talking about most of this podcast of the new Hollywood. And uh, you're in it. Yeah, he, every, he, he interviewed me and, you, and used every and didn't use anything I told him. He just used every negative story he could find about me. That, so, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't very nice. I think I made a joke. I said, I think Coppola wants to take a hit on him, on him. <laughs> <laughs> which of course wasn't true. But So are there any movies lately now that you like? Is there anything to go to the cinema for? Somebody said to me, let's go to a movie. I said, there's nothing playing. I find myself saying that a lot, too. Yeah, I, I like Wes Anderson's movies. I like Noah Baumbach's movies. Mm-hmm. I sometimes like Quentin's movies. Not everything, yeah. but I, I like some of his work. IndieWire ran an article called 15 Great Ways Filmmakers Found Their Independence in the Last 20 Years. And I read this and kind of was scratching my head. It was, it was a kind of aspirational narrative that really ignored the creative and financial reality of making movies now, uh, especially in this moment. You know, the huge challenge it is not to just look at making independent movies as a hobby. You know, and I say a hobby because no one is making any money. So, you know, IndieWire's list includes the formation of killer films, the Dogma 95 movement, Netflix, using an iPhone to make a feature, editing software for the layman, uh, Final Cut Pro, the invention of the DSLR camera. This is all great news, right? I guess. When photography came in, um, still photography, it was the death of the amateur painter. And Auguste Renoir, the old man, regretted that very much, that the, that the camera, the, the still camera, killed the amateur painter. There were no more amateur painters. They, they took a picture instead. And he regretted that because he said, when we had amateur painters, they could appreciate how difficult it was to paint a picture. And the minute they stopped, we lost that. We lost the amateur painter. They, the, the appreciation of paintings went down because it, an amateur painter understood how difficult it is to 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 do what the the impressionists, for example, did, or in fact any painting, Rembrandt or any of them. Now, with the advent of these easy ways to make movies that you've just enumerated. I think it's good. I think it's good because it, 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 you, you have to learn how to do it, and it isn't that easy. 
but I think amateur f- kids making pictures and so on—it's it's a way to learn, and I, I think it's—I think it's a positive, positive thing. I think it's great that you can make a movie for twenty-five bucks if you if you get everybody to do it for nothing. You know, so much of our conversation on this podcast revolves around the passing of the baton from movies as theatrical event to TV. And I have uselessly been fighting in favor of the theatrical experience of movies over TV, that movies are a director's medium, that TV is essentially a writer's medium, where the directorial sensibility doesn't really matter that much, that movies are about mood and atmosphere and using the camera as a character. TV is about other things. It's about story, story, story. And yet it seems to be slightly changing and perhaps for the better. American movies are simply not good now, and TV has begun to catch up with movies in a way. Not yet, not yet, but it seems that it is going to perhaps ultimately get there. We're never going to have that big, the 50 by 50 feet screen or anything, but there is a kind of cinematic reach being tried for on television in terms of a director's sensibility perhaps peeking through all of the exposition. And I was thinking about this After watching two John le Carré adaptations, one was Suzanne Beer's six-hour version of The Night Manager, and I was comparing it to Susanna White's one-hour and 45-minute version of Our Kind of Traitor, starring Ewan McGregor, which just opened in theaters last week. And the Beers movie was made for TV, it was made for AMC, and Our Kind of Traitor was made as a feature for theatrical release. And The Night Manager, in its six hours, took its time, and it managed to encompass the book and because of this was completely alive and totally compelling and it did have a kind of cinematic reach our kind of trader however is condensed and it's squeezed into the feature length format and by comparison is unwatchable uh, not because it's so badly done but because you were constantly aware of the shortcuts of the need to just hit every story beat and move on and there were no digressions no scenes playing themselves out in varying lengths it wasn't breathing in other words but i might not have been so negative on our kind of trader if i hadn't binge watched the night manager on memorial day not leaving my bed for six hours But what are your thoughts about this, the diminishing returns of the American theatrical movie-going experience and now the TV-watching experience and how the intelligentsia has really moved over to television or the iPhone? I mean, I'm creating a web series right now where I'm trying to shoot it as epically as possible, but the company making it has told me that 80% of our people watching this will be watching it on their iPhone. Well, that's depressing. It's too small. But um, I thought The Sopranos was a pretty extraordinary... Extraordinary. One of the best shows ever made. Yeah, and I think it raised the bar. It did. It was the first one that really made you yeah. set up and notice the possibilities of television. Exactly. And uh, I think I think it was very interesting. I, I was glad to be a part of it from the second season on. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a great experience for me being a part of it. You're right. It's not the director's medium. It's more the writers. You, you know, David uh, wrote the. David Chase was supervised everything, and you couldn't change a word without getting permission. I directed one of the episodes, and um, I enjoyed doing it because I knew everybody. But I don't think if if I'd been just came on to it uh, that it would have been as much fun because. You know, everybody knows everybody, and I'm, I'm sort of the—I I would have been the uh, odd man out. But because I was acting in it, um, 
I knew everybody, so it was fun. But it, it was it was um, it's a you're right. It's a writer's medium more than the director's medium. Uh, you know, I was interesting. I told this to David story that Howard Hawks had when I talked to him about Rio Bravo, which is one of my favorite movies, and I know it's one of Quentin's favorite movies. He he, he shows it to every girl he dates, and if she doesn't like it, he doesn't date her anymore. At least that's what the story goes. <laughs> But it's one of my favorite movies, and I mentioned, I asked Howard how he came to make the picture. And he said, well, he hadn't made a picture for about three or four years because he'd had a couple of flops, and he wanted to kind of recharge the batteries and so on. He said, and I hadn't seen any TV, and I came back and I was watching a lot of television, and I noticed that the audience didn't care much about the plot. Of this of the series, they they liked the characters, so they came back to see the characters. So I thought I'd make a movie in which the plot was very brief, not very difficult or long-winded, and focus on the characters entirely. And that I thought it was interesting that he got that from watching TV. But then I said to him, "But how are you've always done that?" You know, the plots in your movies have not been the most important thing ever. They've always been about character. Well, sometimes you you do things and you don't know you're doing them, and then you figure out that you are doing it, and then you do it. <laughs> uh, finally, I don't want to really end this on a depressing note, but I've been thinking about this a lot for the last month or so, and I've asked a couple of the, the last people I've had on this podcast about their impressions of this. I recently hired a 23-year-old assistant to help me out with the shooting of this web series that goes into production at the end of the month. And he just graduated from USC Film School. And during our initial interview, I asked him about film school and what they studied. And he said, uh, uh, the film school was pretty standard, but in a way, it really didn't matter because no one he knew wanted to be a movie director. No one 23 wanted to be a movie director. It was all just about visual content. We just wanted, we wanted to just shoot stuff. <clears throat> and I was surprised... And then I wasn't because of course, of course. Why would millennials want to get into the movie business when there is no movie business, first of all, which to make a living? And why should potential young filmmakers be interested in movies when there aren't any interesting movies being made? What's to inspire them? And add in the fact that they have a lack of interest in anything beyond, you know, a year what do we do? It really was a moment for me. And this is a very intelligent guy and very smart, knows, knows his film history, in fact, but says, I'm not really interested in being a movie director. There's other things to do as well. And, you know, I was both kind of depressed by this in a way. And I guess you have to locate some kind of optimism in the young. Well, I've noticed, I taught a, a, a film for about a year, couple of semesters at the um, University of uh, North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. And um, I noticed that the kids knew virtually nothing about films older than, you know, the, the 90s, I guess, at the most. And they didn't seem to have that much interest and then I showed them some films from earlier times than they were accustomed to seeing, and they liked them. But it was it was not they it was not there was no film culture there really. That wasn't uh, and, and I felt bad about that because I think that the golden age of American movies, which I figure goes from about 1912 to about 1962. 
I, um, I picked 1962 because that's the year they killed Bugs Bunny. <laughs> the end of Warner Brothers cartoons, which I thought were the best cartoons, mm-hmm. particularly Chuck Jones. But that 50-year period has so many extraordinary treasures that are still vibrant and still fresh. There's a lot of crap as well. Of but, course. Right. But, but the good stuff is really great. And it just seems to me a pity that that the, the, the kids aren't interested and that uh, there's no interest in, in that kind of, in those films, that they don't want to see them. They're not interested in them. You know, they say, oh, it's black and white. Uh. <laughs> and I just think that's so sad. And yet there are more film festivals than ever, it seems. There's yeah, but more... they show new films. That's true. And you're right. There seems to be more reviewers everywhere. There seems to be more film blogs all over yeah. uh, social media than ever. But you're right. It is mostly about the new. Yeah. I mean, TCM is powerful. They show good um, films. It's great. I watched um, something. I just flipped the channel and Ford Apache was on. I watched the last half of it. My God, it's brilliant. Yeah, great. It's brilliant. And, um, you know, a film like How Green Was My Valley. I mean, my God, how can anybody be a cultured human being and not see that film? And, um, you know, I was talking to a Czechoslovakian girl, a few years ago and I mentioned some movie like some not obscure but pretty obscure movie like The Lady Eve or mm-hmm. something and she said oh yes yes that's with Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck I said how do you know that and she said well, I'm European <laughs> I'm a lazy lout who is just about to You're the top. 